welcome to the weekly sermon podcast at the Cowboy Church of Ellis County. Last week, I, uh, if you were here, I talked a little bit about marriage, and I talked a little bit about singleness. And what I gather from both my sermon and my studies last week is that in the main, people prefer marriage to singleness. So much do we prefer marriage to singleness that if there is someone in our circle of influence who is not married, we want to help them. And we will pressure them and we will talk to them about the high ideals of marriage and how much it would mean if they were to get married. So much so that I told Chris after the services last week that if we were as good evangelists for Jesus as we were for marriage, there'd be a whole lot more people getting saved. What do you think I meant by that? Well, essentially, guys, if we were as good at selling, when I say evangelist for Jesus, if we were as good at selling the concept of Jesus as we were at selling the concept of marriage, the truth of the matter is a lot, of people, a lot more people would hear the message and respond to it because there's a whole lot more people hearing about marriage than there are people hearing about Jesus. So evangelism... I want you to understand this morning is kind of a selling word. I hate to put that label on it, but I think it's a label that will make sense and work for us. What it really means is to declare the good news. When we're talking about evangelism, it's not just selling per se we're talking about, but but we're talking about selling someone something that we really believe in. It's not so much a sale as it is telling somebody about something that has really helped us. In the commercial world, this is called giving a testimonial. And so sometimes whenever you turn on your television in the morning to watch the news, you will watch various products being sold. And and one of the ways that they do this is by getting people to give testimonials. Anybody ever seen any of the commercials by TexasLending.com? That's all they do, right? They get somebody to stand there and say, man, what a wonderful, great experience that they had getting their mortgage through TexasLending.com. That's a testimonial. And it is a, a way in which they are evangelizing us to use that product. Well, the reality is that most of us are pretty good evangelists at something. In other words, there's something in most of our lives that we are evangelizing even though we might not necessarily even realize that we're doing it. I was an early adopter before very many people had even heard of it, of this little technology called GPS. Back then, one company made them, as I recall, it was Garmin, and they made a little one about the size of a postage stamp, the screen was. It wasn't very big. Uh, it was a big old boxy looking thing with a little bitty screen in it, but I was an early adopter of that. And I'm telling you, as a relative newcomer to the Dallas-Fort Worth Metroplex, when those things came out, brothers, that changed my life. It was a complete different experience trying to find something in Dallas-Fort Worth with that little box than it was this big old book that I had about that thick that I was having to look stuff up in. And so whenever I would get together with people from the church, man, I would tell them about Garmin. I said, man, you guys need to get one of these. It will change your life. Well, what was I doing? I was, in a sense, evangelizing them. I was, I was telling them about something that had helped me and, and something that I thought would help them too. 
And we are called, brothers and sisters, to be evangelists for the Lord Jesus Christ. The Great Commission tells us that we are to go into all the world and, and to make disciples. And so the question I have for us to think about this morning is, why aren't we any good at it? Why are so few of us actually evangelists for Jesus when we are evangelists about so many other things that we find have helped us in our life? And really, there's multiple reasons for it, and I'm just going to touch, I think, on a couple of the big ones. But I think a really big one is that it's possible that we have never actually experienced Jesus for ourselves. See, what makes us a good evangelist for anything, a garment or a marriage or anything else, is that we have had experience of it. Now, there's a pretty good-looking car right there. Now, I don't know if you know what that car is, but that happens to be a Tesla Model S, and not just any Tesla Model S. It is a, a Tesla Model S that has something called ludicrous mode in it. It's a very advanced car. How many of you would be able to come up to me or go up to someone that you uh, like and really give them a good sales job on this vehicle. Not seeing a lot of hands. I wonder why not. It's really a pretty amazing car. As a matter of fact, it has more torque than any diesel pickup made. It has more speed than most supercars made. It can employ that torque and that speed in such a way that the tires never break traction whenever it takes off of the line. It will outrun almost any car that is priced less than a half a million dollars, even though it is only priced a little over $100,000. It is a very amazing car. And by the way, it uses zero gas because it's a Tesla and it runs on battery. But we can't tell people all of those things because we have never experienced it. One guy on Yahoo said, not only is this the best car I've ever owned, it's the best anything that I have ever owned. Now there's an evangelist. And I wonder sometimes if the reason that, that we are not able to tell other people about Jesus is, is the same reason we can't tell people about this car. We just simply, when it comes right down to it, have never experienced him. I want you to open your Bibles this morning to the Gospel of John chapter 3, verse 3, because... It is one of the most profound and important things that Jesus Christ ever said. John chapter 3 at verse 3. It's a simple passage, simple verse. John chapter 3 beginning verse 3. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus here. And it says, Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be born again? I mean, that's pretty important coming from Jesus' mouth. He said, no one will ever see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. What in the world does that mean? To be born again is to have some kind of awakening or some kind of experience that is so profound that from that point forward, you are never the same person. It is a pivot point in your life. And really, we don't have any better picture of it in all of the Scripture than we do from Saul, who was later to become the Apostle Paul. Now, probably most of you are familiar with Saul. 
He is that person who so hated Christianity that he took it upon himself to go from city to city and door to door and arresting anybody that he found that believed in Jesus Christ. He would have them tormented, tortured, locked away, whatever it took until they would disavow Christ because he thought it was a cult and he thought that it threatened Judaism and he believed that he was doing God's work to get rid of it. But now here's some, some interesting things you might not know about Saul. You know what his name meant? You know who he was named after? He was named after Israel's first king in the Old Testament, King Saul. The nation of Israel cried out to the Lord and said, We want to be like other nations. We want you to give us a king. And ultimately God relented and he gave them King Saul. Saul, the name, means to be prayed for or to be asked for. Israel asked for a king. God gave him a king. King Saul, that's who this man's named for. And like King Saul, I think he sees himself as a man with a mission and a purpose. As I said, pursuing the church from town to town. He hated Christians. But I want you to look at Acts chapter 9. Because this is where we find the story of Saul. And we have quite a bit of of verses we're going to look at this morning. But the good news is most of them will be in Acts. And so if you kind of want to keep your place there, that would be helpful to you. So he's going from place to place, and and he hates Christians, and he's trying to do away with them, and that's what we find him doing in Acts chapter 9, beginning at verse 1. It says, Meanwhile, Saul was uttering threats with every breath and was eager to kill the Lord's followers. So he went to the high priest, and he requested letters addressed to the synagogues in Damascus, asking for their cooperation in the arrest of any followers of the way that he found there. And he wanted to bring them, both men and women, back to Jerusalem in chains. As he was approaching Damascus on this mission, a light from heaven suddenly shone around him and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Who are you, Lord? Saul asked. And the voice replied, I am Jesus, the one you're persecuting. Now get up and go into the city and and you will be told what you must do. And I'm going to stop right there. That was his encounter. That was his experience with Jesus Christ. Before that experience, he was Saul, named after King Saul, the prayed for one, the asked for one. He had that encounter on the Damascus Road. And from that point forward, we begin to know him as Paul. Any idea what the word Paul or the name Paul means? It means the small or humble one. He thought that he was a big man until he met Jesus Christ on the road to Damascus. And he recognized just exactly how far from God that he was, how deeply mired in sin that he really was. And he no longer saw himself as anyone special after that day. And he no longer pursued the people of Christ after that day. But instead, he became the strongest advocate probably that the world has ever known for the case of Christ. I mean, that is a complete change. It's a change of direction. It is a change of name. It is a change of personality. It is a complete remake of a man. We can say very accurately that Saul was born again. And Jesus says that no one is going to enter the kingdom of heaven unless they are born again. 
No one really knows Christ unless they have been born again. And that doesn't mean, my brothers and sisters, and I worry about this sometimes, even in my own preaching. It doesn't mean that you have to be struck by a blinding light out of heaven and and fall down and have something that is so remarkable and supernatural. Uh, it, It doesn't require that. But, but what being born again does require is that we actually come to a deep personal revelation. I'm going to call it a revelation. A deep personal revelation of who Jesus was. That is the Son of God. And a deep personal revelation of why He died on the cross. So that we no longer believe in Jesus just as a historical figure or just as some good teacher or anything else. Nor do we believe in Jesus Christ as as the Son of God in a generic sense. But we believe that He was the very Son of God who came to die on the cross for us. Being born again means that you understand that Jesus had to die for you. And that He did die for you. And that so changes your outlook that you can never again from that point forward walk around with your head held too very high because it has a way of putting you in your place when you understand that apart from from the death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ, you would have no hope of being right in the eyes of God. Now, we may very well carry within ourselves a generic belief in God and I think a lot of people do but the Bible says even the devil believes in God but the devil ain't saved brothers and sisters he is not born again he does not have the realization of of his own ugliness and so this is what it means to be born again and I think one of the reasons why a lot of people don't share Christ is they just simply have never had that experience. And so it's very difficult for them to really have the motivation to share Him. But I want, for the sake of this sermon this morning, to assume that many of us, maybe even most of us sitting here, particularly in the 830 service, have in fact been born again. If that's true, then what is it that keeps us from sharing Christ? If we have had that encounter with Christ, if we know where that pivot point was in our life, if we can say that we are different because of knowing Jesus Christ than we used to be, well, well then what keeps us from sharing about that experience? And I think the shortest answer is simply this, it's fear of failure. Most of us, I think most Christians even, have this idea that sharing Christ is a very difficult and dangerous procedure. It's a little bit like brain surgery. If you do it wrong, you know, if you're a brain surgeon and you get it wrong, you can really mess somebody up. And I think that that's the way a lot of us kind of feel about the gospel. Man, if I don't tell it right, if I don't do it right, if I don't get it right, I'm going to confuse somebody and mess them up and they're going to be worse off than they were. And, And I think, Along that same line, while we often don't feel competent to share the gospel, we carry within us this belief that there are some people out there that do know how to share the gospel very well. And that they are very capable of telling someone about Jesus in such a way that they won't mess anything up. 
We tend to believe that these people will have maximum success and minimum failure. And by that I simply mean they're less likely to be rejected. They're less likely to offend someone. They're less likely to confuse someone. They're less likely to get in trouble for opening their mouth in the wrong time in the wrong place. They believe that there is this ideal person out there that can share the gospel and just not make any ripples on the water and someone will come to believe in Christ. And since there are people out there like that, in our mind, we think, what? Maybe it's just better to leave it to the pros, right? I don't know what I'm doing, so, you know, let's leave it to someone who does. And if that's your mindset this morning, I want to try to lighten it a little bit by sharing with you a slice of life from the Apostle Paul. And to be sure. The Apostle Paul was, in fact, a great evangelist. There's nothing else that we can say. I mean, there have been a lot of great men of God down through the years. There were the Wesley brothers, and there was Charles Haddon Spurgeon, and there was D.L. Moody, and there was Billy Graham, and, and many, many more who have made amazing impact through their testimony and their witnessing to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. But nobody, I don't think, has made a greater impact than Paul. I mean, Paul literally changed the world. When I took history in college, we studied the life of Paul because it was considered that he was one of the great molders and, and shapers of Western civilization. And you've got to consider what he accomplished. In the day in which there was no modern communication, no modern transportation, the roads even were fairly rudimentary in most places. Not all. The Romans had some roads. There's a map up here for you. This is Paul's life on a map. And, and as you know, back in those days, Rome was uh, up there. You can see Italy, the little boot hill in the top left-hand corner up there. Uh, Rome was the center of the world, and the Mediterranean is... is basically the, the western civilized world as it was at that time. And if you looked at Paul's life, he was just all over that thing. And, and he made this amazing impact, there's no doubt about it. And much of the Bible, by the way, guys, much of our New Testament, about two-thirds of it, was written by this man, Paul, because after he had traveled to all of these places, you see, when they would have problems or questions, he would write them a letter and send it to them. And they would collect the letters. And those letters have wound up, many of them, in our, in our New Testament. And so even today, so many years after his ministry is gone, he continues to make a difference in the world. And so in that sense, it's hard to argue that Paul wasn't successful. But I have, over the last couple of weeks been doing a very slow read. Sometimes it's good to read fast. Sometimes it's good to read slow. And I have been doing a very slow read of the book of Acts. And what has struck me, Acts has so much of Paul's life recorded. And what has struck me as I have read the book of Acts is not how successful that Paul was, but how many failures that Paul had along the way. And so this morning, we're going to take just as quick of a journey as I can take you through, through, through uh, at least Paul's first missionary journey, and we're going to look at his ministry and what kind of experiences that he had. And so I want you to go, first of all, to Acts chapter 
uh, 9. We're already there, I think. And let's go down to verse 19. This is after Paul has had his born-again experience. We're going to go to the second half of verse 19. There's a paragraph split right in the middle of the verse. And so Acts chapter 9, verse 19b. And we're going to read down through about verse 25. It says that Saul stayed with the believers in Damascus for a few days. All right, So he's had that experience already. And he immediately begins preaching about Jesus in the synagogue, saying he is indeed the Son of God. All who heard him were amazed. Isn't this the same man who caused such devastation among Jesus' followers in Jerusalem, they asked? And didn't he come here to arrest them and take him in chains to the leading priest? And Saul's preaching became more and more powerful. And the Jews in Damascus could not refute his proofs that Jesus was indeed the Messiah. So far, so good! Right? He has an encounter with Jesus Christ. He is born again. He is prayed for. Immediately he begins to preach in Damascus and people are listening to him. No one's able to refute him. One thing about Paul is he knew his Bible because he was a Pharisee. And he was trained by one of the best teachers in the business, Gamaliel. He knew the Bible. And the thing of it is, once he got to be born again, he all of a sudden had a revelation of how much of the Old Testament actually pointed forward to Jesus Christ. And nobody was able to refute him. Seems like he's winning. Verse 23. But after a while, some of the Jews plotted together to kill him. And they were watching for him day and night at the city gate so that they could murder him. But Saul was told of their plot. So during the night, some of the other believers lured him in a large basket through an opening in the city wall. Well, it seemed like things were going pretty good. But it wasn't very long before people were so angry and agitated and aggravated at Paul that they literally had to, to, to drop him through the wall in the middle of the night so he could flee town. Well, where does he go? He goes back to Jerusalem. Now, if you remember the story, when he goes back to Jerusalem, the disciples in Jerusalem said, man, we don't want no part of this guy because this is the same guy that went to Damascus to kill Christians. We don't want him around us. But a man named Barnabas comes along, and Barnabas takes Paul to the believers at Jerusalem, and he uh, introduces him to some of the leaders, and pretty soon they begin to allow Saul in among them, and, 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 and Saul begins to preach, or Paul begins to preach, and, and, uh, and he is accepted in, in that community of people. But I want you to, to, to pick up at verse 26. It says, when Saul arrived in Jerusalem, he tried to meet with the believers. This is what I just was talking about, but they were all afraid of him. And they did not believe that he had truly become a believer. Then Barnabas brought him to the apostles and told them how Saul had seen the Lord on the way to Damascus and how the Lord had spoken to Saul. And he also told them that Saul had preached boldly in the name of Jesus in Damascus. So, Saul stayed with the apostles. And he went all around Jerusalem with them. And he preached boldly in the name of the Lord, just like all of the other apostles. And he debated with some Greek-speaking Jews, but... Here it is again. They tried to murder him. And when the believers heard about this, they took him down to Caesarea and sent him away to Tarsus, his hometown. He seemed to have a way of being more offensive than the other apostles. Because it didn't say that they tried to murder the other apostles, at least not at this point. They specifically really, really didn't like him. And so again, he, he's run out of town. 
Now, we don't hear about him for a little while. And, and what happens is there is a great persecution that breaks out against the church in Jerusalem. And a lot of the believers in the Lord, they have to run away. They scatter out to other towns, and some of them go to a place called Antioch. Maybe you've heard of it. Antioch is where Christians were first called Christians. And Paul's hometown of, of, of Tarsus wasn't too far from there. And once the people at Antioch began to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, the church at Jerusalem sent Barnabas down. And uh, when Barnabas saw that a lot of believers were there, he went immediately to Tarsus and he brought Saul back with him. He said, I need some help teaching these people. And so he ran and, and got hold of one of the best teachers he knew who was Saul. And so they taught at Antioch for a pretty good little while. And then the church at Antioch sent them on a mission trip. And we're going to look at this real quickly. I want you to look at Acts chapter 13. A little mission trip. So we've looked at the first part of Saul's ministry and how it ended. And now we're going to look at really the heart of his Christian ministry, Acts chapter 13. And uh, rather than reading through all of this because there's a long sermon, I think what I want to do is there is a map up here. And um, if you see the blue line, this is where they took off on the mission trip. And they went to the island of Cyprus. And they had pretty good success there. There were some people converted, particularly a very well-known Roman. Uh, Sergius Paulus was converted in Cyprus, but they didn't stay long. They went immediately, immediately up into that green area up top. And uh, they went to a place called Lystra. And that's where I want to pick up. Now, whenever they, I'm sorry, I'm skipping one. Actually, they, the, the blue line takes them first to Pisidian Antioch and then Lystra. So when they get to Pisidian Antioch, it goes pretty good. Uh, a lot of people seem to believe Paul's message. As a matter of fact, he goes to the synagogue. He teaches there. They like what he says so much that they invite him back. And if you'll skip down to Acts chapter 13... And let's look at about verse 42 or 43. Here's kind of how his deal goes down in, in Antioch. Pisidian Antioch, by the way. There's two Antiochs. It says, as Paul and Barnabas left the synagogue that day, the people begged them to speak about these things again next week. Now, brothers, that's good. You go and preach somewhere and they invite you to come back, that's good. And so many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, and the two men urged them to continue to rely on the grace of God. It all looks really good. Verse 44, it gets even better. In verse 44, the entire city turns out to hear them preach the word of the Lord. That's really good. I mean, that's the ideal of ministry. If I could go to a town where they didn't know Christ... And I could go into a synagogue or a church and I could preach or teach a little bit. And they liked me so much they invited me back. That would be good. But then if I went back the following week and the whole town showed up, that's a home run. And so everything is looking good for, for Paul at this point. But then we arrive at verse 45. Verse 45. It says, but then some of the Jews saw the crowds. And they were jealous, so they slandered Paul and argued against whatever he said. 
And then Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly and declared it was necessary that we first preach the word of God to you Jews. But since you have rejected and judged yourselves unworthy of eternal life, we will offer it to the Gentiles. For the Lord gave us this command when he said, I have made you a light to the Gentiles to bring salvation to the farthest corners of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they were very glad and thanked the Lord for his message. And all who were chosen for eternal life became believers. So the Lord's message spread throughout that region. Again, that sounds pretty good. But then look at verse 50. Then the Jews stirred up the influential religious women and the leaders of the city. And they incited a mob against Paul and Barnabas and ran them out of town. And so they shook the, shook the dust from their feet as a sign of rejection and went then to the town of Iconium. Well, I don't know if you're keeping count or not, brothers and sisters. But since Saul has come to know the Lord and begin to testify about Christ, he has been run out of town by angry mobs three times. And if you continue following his mission trip, the next place they stop is, is, is Iconium. And we'll go ahead and read that quickly, beginning at verse 1. Next stop is Iconium. It said the same thing happened in Iconium. Hmm, what was that? It says, Paul and Barnabas went to the Jewish synagogue and preached with such power that a great number of Jews and Greeks became believers. And some of the Jews, however, spurned God's message and poisoned the minds of the Gentiles against Paul and Barnabas. But the apostles stayed there a long time, which is good, preaching boldly about the grace of the Lord, and the Lord proved their message was true by giving them the power to do miraculous signs and wonders. But the people of the town were divided in their opinion about them. Some sided with the Jews and some with the apostles. Now, so again, they're having pretty good luck. They're going in. They, they get into the synagogue. People accept their message. They accept them. It feels like things are going all right. But there's division. Some people believe what they're saying. Some people don't believe what they're saying. And then you pick up at the next verse, verse 5. Then a mob of Gentiles and Jews, along with their leaders, decided to attack and stone them. And when the apostles learned of it, they fled through the region of Laconia to the towns of Lystra and Derbe and the surrounding area. Well, one more time, the apostle Paul is run out of town because of his message. This time he goes to Lystra. And uh, Lystra is a little bit more interesting, and I really don't want to take the time to read the whole passage. Uh, uh, let's read verses. We can read beginning at verse 8. Let's go ahead and read verse 8 through maybe 19. We won't read all of it. They have a little more interesting experience here. It says, While they were at Lystra, Paul and Barnabas came upon a man with crippled feet. He had been that way from birth, so he had never walked, and he was sitting and listening as Paul preached. And so looking straight at him, Paul realized that he had faith to be healed. So Paul called to him in a loud voice, stand up, and the man jumped to his feet and started walking. When the crowd saw what Paul had done, they shouted in their local dialect, these men are gods in human form. And they decide that Barnabas was the Greek god Zeus and that Paul was Hermes since he was the chief speaker. Now the temple of Zeus was located just outside of town, so the priests of the temple and the crowd brought bulls and wreaths of flowers to the town gates, and they prepared to offer sacrifices to the apostles. Well, this is a turn of events. 
So they go to the next town, and he begins to talk about the Lord, and, and he's enabled to do a miracle. And sometimes we wonder why God doesn't allow miracles as often as he used to. I'm telling you, miracles are not always particularly effective. Now, these people were very open to the miracle. But once they realized that it had been a miracle, they, 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 their minds didn't change. They said, well, this must be our gods that are empowering these men to do it. Or maybe these men are, are, are gods themselves. And they had a hard time getting the people to, to understand it. And then, let's go ahead and uh, skip down to about verse 19. Let's see how it all ends. It says in verse 19, Then some Jews arrived from Antioch and Iconium, where they had already been before, and they won the crowds to their side, and they stoned Paul. This time he didn't get away. They stoned him, and they dragged him out of town, thinking that he was dead. So what you see here is that everywhere that, that Saul went, there were some successes. But there were also some very significant failures. There were always a few people who would believe, but there were always many others who didn't. But what I really want you to see about Saul's ministry is this, guys. We look back and we think of how successful he was, but I'm telling you he was always one step ahead of tar and feathers. Everywhere he went. Barely, barely staying ahead of the mob. Some people would believe, some people would not believe. And... and uh, in some cases, he just didn't have any luck in getting the people to understand his message at all. I would dare say to you this morning that that is not at all what you and I imagine success to look like. When we think of success and sharing the gospel, we don't think about mobs. We don't think about arguments. We don't think about slander. We don't think about having to run away from people because they are so upset and angry with us. And yet the greatest man who, who shared the gospel uh, uh, post-resurrection, post the, the, the apostle Paul, that is exactly what he experienced throughout his entire ministry. And I don't think that we ought to be surprised by that because the Lord Jesus Christ both predicted that that's what would happen and I think the life of the Lord Jesus Christ foreshadowed that. I want us to look at the Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. Gospel of Mark, chapter 4. And I want to look at a little parable that Jesus taught. And I know we're looking at a lot of Scripture this morning, but I just want you to see this. Sometimes we have ideas in our mind that are so far off the mark that it really pays to look at some scripture to get our, our thinking shifted. Mark chapter 4, beginning at verse 3, is a very familiar parable. Mark chapter 4, beginning verse 3. Jesus says, listen, a farmer went out to plant some seed. As he scattered it across his field, some of the seed fell on a footpath, and the birds came and ate it. Other seed fell on shallow soil with underlying rock, and the seed sprouted quickly because the soil was shallow. But the plant soon wilted under the hot sun. Since it didn't have deep roots, it died. Other seed fell among thorns that grew up and choked out the tender plants so that they produced no grain. Still other seeds fell on fertile soil and they sprouted, grew, and produced a crop that was 30, 60, and even 100 times as much as had been planted. 
And then Jesus said, anyone who with ears to hear should listen and understand. What's, it, what's Jesus talking about here? What's he talking about? It's real easy to know because if you skip down to verse 13, he tells us. It says, Jesus said to them, if you can't understand the meaning of this parable, how will you understand the other parables? The farmer plants the seed by taking God's word to others. That's what he's talking about. The farmer plants the seed by taking God's word to others. Well, what happens, brothers and sisters, according to Jesus, when anybody takes the word of God to others? He said, well, a lot of times it's just like a seed that falls right on this concrete, right on something that's hard, right on something that's packed down. It doesn't go in. Sometimes you're, you're, you're going to try to share your testimony or share the gospel with another person. And according to Jesus, there are going to be some people, it's just not going to go in. It's not going to get there. Satan is going to come along before you make any impact on their life. And he's going to raise some justification in their mind why everything that they're doing is right and everything that they believe is okay and, and that nothing you say is need to impact them. And, and so you're not going to accomplish anything. He said there's going to be other times, however, whenever you sow the seed in someone's life, that they're going to receive it gladly. That, that it's going to look like to you that it has been a true life-changing encounter. They're going to, they're, they're, it's going to appear for all intents and purposes like they're born again. They're going to begin to talk like Christians. They're going to begin to act like Christians. They're probably going to begin to attend church. And you're going to think, man, I really got through to this person. However, what they're thinking is that the gospel of Christ is always supposed to make life better. Guys, there's an awful lot of people out there today that believe that the gospel of Christ is always only supposed to make life better. And the problem is that if you live very long, actually, the older you get, life doesn't get better. If you live to be old enough, it actually gets consequentially worse. Knees wear out. Eyes wear out. Ears quit hearing. Teeth begin to fail. All kinds of problems that you have, and that's just physical ones, not even talking about the, the separation that you might that you might go through with a husband or a wife or a child dying. And, and, and these people who are not prepared to that, when problems come into their life, they blow out because they say, well, it's not working. I, I, I came to the Lord so my life could be better. My life's not better, so there's nothing to it. So you have that. Jesus said that's one point of failure. He said there's other people that you're going to share your faith with, and, and they're going to want it, and they're going to listen to you. And, and they're going to accept what you say. I mean, it's going to come into their life. They're, they're going to lay hold of it. But the problem is, they're just so busy. They're just so busy. They have so many things pulling on their life. They have so many expectations from their job. They have so many expectations from their children and from their grandchildren. So many ball games to go to. So many activities to be involved in. So much that has to be done that eventually what happens is the, the room for the gospel to do any good in their life is just choked out. And even though they may have accepted Christ, they never produce any fruit for him. And Jesus is telling us here 
that at the end of the day, if we dare to plant the seed of the gospel in other people's lives, the best that we can hope for, according to my math, one out of four, right? That's 25%. The best we can hope for is maybe 25% will actually become faithful followers of Christ who make a difference in the kingdom of heaven. And I'm going to tell you the truth. I think when you, you look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ, his life wasn't all that different, nor was his ministry all that different from Paul's. We often think about the crowds that Jesus attracted. We often think about the miracles that Jesus did. We often think about the love that Christ extended to others, and all of those things were true. But I want you to think about something this morning, guys. Even though Jesus was filled with the Holy Spirit beyond measure, and even though he was able to do miracles that nobody else could do, and even though he was able to speak the word of God with a power that no one else ever has, he also was hounded everywhere he went. He absolutely was. There were many times that Jesus had to slip away from the crowd to, to keep from being uh, basically taken in by a mob. There were people who followed Jesus who were following him for the all reasons. There were a lot of people that followed Jesus who, who were following him because it was a great show. There were people following Jesus because they hoped for a free meal. We read about that in the scripture. And so even whenever you look at the life of Jesus, it's far from being completely successful. As a matter of fact, so much is that true that towards the end of his life, whenever he was arrested and brought before Pontius Pilate, instead of all of these lives that he supposedly touched standing up for him and defending him, everyone stood up in unison and they cried out what? Crucify him crucify him we need to relieve ourselves of the idea brothers and sisters that we should only share the gospel if we are confident that we can succeed we need to relieve ourselves of the idea that there is a way to share the gospel that is guaranteed not to offend anybody not to confuse anybody not to bring any rejection into our lives because I'm telling you there is no such formula Jesus did not have that formula. Paul did not have that formula. And we ought not to expect to have it either. But if we take up the challenge to tell other people our story, if we take up the challenge to share the gospel with other people, one of the things that we can hope for is that just like Jesus and just like Paul, there will be some always who believe and accept the message. May not be many. But there will be some. I never will forget the first person who genuinely shared the gospel with me. And the first person I actually allowed to share the gospel with me, if you want to know the truth. And I've shared this before in different contexts. But when my wife and I were about to be married, we had to go for premarital counseling. Brother, my brain was a locked vault. I mean, it was like a slammed bank vault. I had no inclination to go there. I had no inclination to hear from him. I had no inclination to be a Christian. I had no inclination to hear the gospel. I considered myself as far from it as you could possibly be. However, I didn't want to get married, so that was the deal. And come to find out, this man had a really interesting story. 
he had been a, a, an executive with IBM making six figures. And that was a long, long time ago. And he told uh, uh, us about how he encountered the Lord and how he decided to leave IBM to preach the gospel in these little old churches. And, I, and that impressed me. It made an impact on me. I, his story may have got through to me where nobody else's would. I thought, man, why would anybody lay all that down to do this? And, and, and I began to decide that there was something to it. I have no idea whether he went away from that encounter believing that he had done any good at all that night. But what I can tell you is he sent me on a search that ultimately led me to becoming born again. He planted the seed that brought me to the Lord. Now, guys, he didn't know that. I left that office that night. He, he was bound to have believed that was the hard-headedest guy I ever encountered, and I didn't get anywhere. But the reality is he did. And what I want you to hear this morning is that the only way that we are ever going to succeed in sharing the gospel is accepting the idea that mainly we're going to fail. Mainly, that's what we're going to do. If you decide to be a person who evangelizes for the Lord Jesus Christ, mainly you're going to fail. Indeed, I would go as far as to say this. When it comes to producing fruit from the Lord, failure is our only path to success. That's a weird thing to say, isn't it? Failure is the only path to success. But I want to tell you about a couple of things this morning that we have that can help you. Okay. After the 1030 service... Uh, first Sunday of every month, this being the first Sunday after the 10.30 service, not the 8.30. You can go right next door to the ranch house and we have something called Saddle Up 101. And the reason that we have Saddle Up 101 is twofold. One is we go through a section of that where we help you understand really what it means to be born again and help you to do an evaluation of yourself to see if you are. And the second thing that we offer to you there is a reason some of us don't share our story is we don't know our story. And so we try to help you understand and develop and write down your own story so that you will know it well enough to share it with someone when that opportunity arises. So that is a great tool that you can take advantage of today. Another great tool that we have that you can take advantage of is this. It's our connect groups. One of the things that Paul did every time he won a soul, he didn't just leave that person out there. He didn't just win somebody at the airport and just leave them in the airport. There weren't airports back then, I get it. But you understand what I'm saying. He just didn't leave them there. He always got them back with a group of people and he himself would teach them or he would appoint someone to teach them so they could grow in the Lord. Guys, we have a ready-made group to receive people who are just beginning to dip their toes in the water and have questions about the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. And those connect groups are ideal places for them to experience the love of Christ from you guys, from them to be able to ask questions, and for you to be able to gain the experience of interacting with them and telling them your story and showing them things from Scripture. All of those things are things that we offer here. I would say at the end of the day this, guys. We have every tool at our disposal for sharing the gospel that Saul had. We have the Word of God. We have the Holy Spirit. We have prayer. 
We have our story and we have a place where we can bring people who are interested in Christ so that they can grow in their understanding of the gospel. I think the only thing that most of us lack, if you want to know the truth, is we just don't have the heart to fail. But until we are prepared to know that we're going to fail, we'll never share Jesus with another living soul. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, I come to you this morning in Jesus' name. And I thank you, Lord God, for our time together. I pray, Father God, that it's been effective. I know better than most, Heavenly Father, of how difficult that it can be to want to step out whenever we whenever we're afraid that we're going to upset someone or we're afraid that we're going to bring consequences upon ourselves, And somehow, Lord, we imagine that it's possible to share the gospel without those things being present, but in reality, it's just simply not so. And so what I pray for this morning, what I asked for earlier in my prayer is the same thing I'm going to repeat right now, Father, is not just that you would change our minds, but that, Father God, you would change our hearts that you would give us courage, that you would let us know, you would let us see clearly that there has always been much of failure in anyone who chose to uh, share their story, share their testimony, share the gospel of Christ. And yet, Father, there has always also been a, uh, a number of people who would believe. And those people who believe have made all the difference. Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had together, and we ask your blessing on it this morning in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. For this sermon and many more, check out our website at www.cowboyfaith.org.